essentially, uh, the thing that I'm going to talk about is how, yeah, there are key phenomenological observations that I think are quite important for developing a science of exotic states of consciousness. Um, and uh, these observations are, I mean, things that, uh, uh, as I'll explain, you know, are not necessarily things you can read about in the scientific literature. Um, and it's not exactly either something that you can find on drug forums, although that gets a little bit closer. Um, but you will be able to find this on uh, a few very interesting books and also in some QRI content. So, um, yeah, I'll get started. So, uh, as a bit of a background, I mean, there is definitely this issue that uh, facts dictate theory <laughs> just as much as the other way around. So, in a way, in principle, you know, like theories are to be kind of developed from kind of like a body of facts and then uh, we find the best fit for okay, what is kind of like a way of aggregating all of those facts in a way that you get, you know, really good predictions, you get rid of the noise, um, you don't overfit, you don't underfit. But um, it seems to be uh, very much the case that at least insofar as consciousness is concerned, <laughs> it has been historically the case that uh, essentially theory dictates facts quite a lot right so uh just as an example like we had you know almost a, a, an entire century of behaviorism or at least a half a century of behaviorism and like such a extremely outlandish and kind of divorced theory of consciousness uh, in, some, in some sense kind of a theory of the, the absence of consciousness uh, or the not needing consciousness for explaining uh and understanding uh organisms um which yeah clearly is kind of like an extreme case where uh, the theory is dictating the facts rather than the other way around. Uh, I would definitely you know, suggest that, for example, functionalism in, in philosophy of mind uh, does exactly the same thing, almost to the same extent as behaviorism. Maybe it's not as egregious, but it, it does get pretty close. So, I mean, given this um, very, very, very strong historical precedent, I think it is very worth asking the question, uh, for example, can DMT experiences really be accounted for by predictive coding or by the free energy principle or like functional localization or like notions of, of neural causality, you know, like Granger causality. So given the absence of alternative paradigms, as it turns out, you know, okay, like, if behaviorism is telling you like, yeah, don't worry about experiences, epiphenomenal, just worry about behavior and reinforcement. And then you have like these super exotic experiences, you know, in the absence of a sensible scientific paradigm, a lot of people tend to default to just kind of like go into the paranormal cluster. It's like, okay, science cannot explain what I experienced. Therefore, there must be, yeah, something, something really magical going on. This, you know, sociologically generates a problem where you get either people who become like true believers in science in the top-down theory of science that is neglecting the facts of consciousness, and then people who are essentially just kind of like winging it and, and saying like, no, it's just something so radically different, it must be, it must be paranormal. Um, and uh, I worry that to some extent this may be going on right now with yeah, paradigms like the free energy principle or, or predictive coding. I mean, talking to researchers and people in university, um, 
our PhD students, it's very common, you know, nowadays. It's like, okay, but can you put that in a, you know, in a free energy framework? Can you put that in a pr predictive coding framework? But it's, it's like, hey guys, I'm actually showing like really relevant data that maybe has nothing to do with predictive coding. Although, I mean, ultimately everything is connected. To some extent, yes, predictive coding can account for some features of the psychedelic experience. And I'll um, explain a little bit about that. So just kind of like a, a note, uh, something that has like really puzzled me is that, uh, okay, like if you do kind of like have a such a strange experience, let's say you take LSD and uh, you have like this experience of telepathy with, with a friend of yours, which is reported. I mean, there's like a lot of Reddit posts about <laughs> telepathy on LSD. Uh, two people take, I don't know, 200 micrograms and then they kind of like hang out silently. And after like a couple hours, they realize they have been exchanging a whole conversation without opening their mouth. Now, conveniently, there hasn't, you know, ever been a recording, <laughs> as far as I know, that showcases this phenomenon. But, you know, it, it, it appears all over the place. Okay, I'm agnostic. I, I don't know if it's real or not. But um, here's like one suggestion if you actually think there is something to this. So according to Dean Radin, um, I believe it's uh, the uh, Noetic Foundation, uh, people who do believe in the paranormal, um, you know, they have identified a set of kind of like criteria that increases the probability of a psi phenomena. So they describe things such as like psychological closeness, genetic relationships, recent interactions, uh, meditators, uh, shared tasks or kind of like a shared context uh, or the use of psychedelics. So to me, a very low hanging fruit, like a very obvious possibility would be to apply all of these conditions at once just to make sure the effect actually happens. So uh, if I were to actually take seriously this cluster, I would say, yeah, let's get identical twins who were, were brought up together and spend most of their time together who are hardcore meditators <laughs> and who just spent the last three months on a retreat doing the exact same thing. They love each other and who are currently on 250 micrograms of LSD. And under those conditions, let's get them to do a yeah, grass field experiment. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if this increases the effect sizes to such an extent, um, then in principle, we might just need one experiment. <laughs> and you know, you know, you get something like 99% accuracy and then we're done. We have shown that size is a real thing. Okay, well, that's just kind of like a, a side note. Uh, I'm not personally that interested in pursuing the paranormal uh, cluster. Rather, I am interested in not giving up <laughs> on my facts <laughs> because my facts are really important and they're not accounted for by the theory. Okay, so what are these what are these facts? Okay, uh, I think this slide is about, yeah, I mean, basically, yeah, people kind of uh, abandon the project of reductive naturalism uh, quite easily as soon as they actually encounter facts that the, the theory cannot predict. And again, like behaviorism or, or functionalism, it's kind of like making the mistake that just because the current theory uh, is the most advanced or most popular, most cited, that it is in some sense any in any way kind of like a complete theory of consciousness. So um, uh, as, as a very important kind of like piece of background, I would say that the, the aim of QRI in, in the psychedelic space is actually a field building, right? So it's, we're not like um, only going to kind of like, yeah, trying to talk about like, okay, is there a, a, a predictive coding interpretation of this phenomena or not? 
um, really we're kind of like suggesting new paradigms for making sense of these experiences, making sense of exotic states of consciousness more, more generally. Uh, and here are like, yeah, uh, uh, kind of like some, some suggestions for essentially how to actually go about into developing these, these new paradigm, which uh, we might describe as kind of a, a field building, but I'll, I'll go into more uh, depth into these. So um, as one very key kind of like paradigmatic improvement, uh, I, I would mention, uh, yeah, this concept of psychedelic epistemology. So um, in most uh, kind of like neuroscience research on psychedelics, on exotic states uh, through meditation and so on, Nowadays, we have, um, yeah, kind of like this third-person scientific studies approach where you kind of like take a large row of people who don't know each other. They all have like some exotic experience. Maybe you do neuroimaging on them and you give them questionnaires or psychophysics, you know, word analysis, <laughs> things of the sort. Um, and uh, that's great. I mean, that collects a lot of data and I think is very helpful. But uh, it's quite limited when it comes to actually getting like high quality phenomenology. Why? Because you're limited to giving them questionnaires that were developed by people who don't necessarily are experts about the phenomenology of psychedelics, right? Like it is my, my opinion very much so that like if you look at the mystical experience uh, questionnaire, um, I don't think it was developed by a phenomenologist. I don't think it's somebody, somebody who was like, you know, taking hundreds of trips of LSD and like actually really paying attention to the experience and then cataloging it so that we can have kind of this set of like, okay, what actually happened? Um, like, no, it's kind of like a weird mix of like spirituality concepts, religious concepts, uh, kind of like vague ideas. And yeah, it kind of has like some predictive value, but it seems very far removed from, from actual phenomenology. Um, and then more so everybody who has this experience in a way then uh, kind of just goes away or maybe they have like a you know repeat follow-up but but that's about it um, the, the information actually gets lost uh, dissipates then you have the 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 second possibility which is what we're used to with kind of like the more weird aspect of I guess uh, people uh, yeah exploring psychedelics which is uh, individual explorer types where you have like a psychonaut like John Lilly or Terence McKenna, more recently Christopher Bach uh, came out as kind of like a hardcore psychonaut uh, worth uh, listening to. And I think like you should definitely read all of this content. Um, but for the most part, you, you, you experience a lot of overfeeding uh, because essentially you, you have like one person who's developing these uh, ideas, these metaphysics, and then it's kind of reinforcing them and exploring them from different angles over and over again without necessarily kind of like questioning or, or, or really diving into like the background philosophical assumptions or scientific assumptions that underpin the, the interpretation framework for, for the experience. Instead, what we suggest will actually provide the most uh, beneficial breakthroughs in the science of consciousness is going to be a think tank model. So essentially a critical mass of smart, introspective individuals driven to faithfully characterize the phenomenology and the observed dynamics of ex exotic states of consciousness. Um, and uh, the reason why this is so important is because, I mean, not only do you get like critical feedback and, you know, critical thinking, because you, you can bounce these ideas off with, with others, uh, but also there's kind of this property that like after like very exotic experiences, 
uh, there's kind of like this exponential decay of how much access you have to them. Or I don't know, maybe it's like a hyperbolic decay, but the point is like it decays relatively quickly. Uh, especially, I don't know, something like DMT, you know, like within an hour, you, you've forgotten like a lot of phenomenal character, unless you happen to be some somebody who's really lucky and can actually remember that, that sort of thing. Um, but in a sense, this is why you need a critical mass, uh, like enough people who are close enough to the phenomenon at hand that collectively they can still reconstruct structural features of, of those, those experiences. Um, and uh, I mean, to some extent, I would say, well, yeah, when it comes to meditation and exotic states of consciousness for the last, you know, five, six years at QRI, uh, not, not specifically people at QRI, but actually kind of this thing we call Phenomenology Club, uh, inviting, yeah, just super smart, you know, driven, introspective individuals to share actually their phenomenology on things such as uh, mania or uh, migraines or indeed things such as 5-MeO DMT. Um, okay, so that's a that's an important like paradigmatic change. I I, I would definitely suggest. Um, uh, uh, another important point is that it is very easy to kind of like um, overlook how how constrained uh, an actual full theory of consciousness has to be in order to actually solve the problem of consciousness. So this list comes from uh, David Pierce, and there's kind of like an expanded list. I also recommend looking into the eight subproblems of consciousness by Michael, Jun uh, Michael Johnson in Principia Qualia. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in brief, any scientific theory of consciousness must be able to explain why consciousness exists to begin with. Uh, that is kind of like a very important criteria. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, most theories really don't do that. Uh, the, the second one is explain the nature and scope of qualia varieties, qualia values, and their interrelationships. Um, I mean, there's, for example, the, the logo of QRI uh, maps out the, the state space of phenomenal color, um, where, yeah, I mean, basically all phenomenal color is part of the same qualia variety because there is a path between any particular point in that color space to any other po uh, point in that color space through just noticeable differences, kind of like there's a gradient path towards it. Um, and a qualia value is like a specific point in, in one of those spaces. Uh, for example, uh, the qualia variety of color is different than the qualia variety of sound because th there's actually no way of bridging between them um, without like changing something fundamentally quantitative, uh, qualitative in, in the middle. Uh, third, any theory of consciousness has to be able to explain the phenomenal binding problem. Like, why is it that we are not mind dust? Like, how is it possible that we can actually have, you know, a hundred billion neurons that are specially distributed simultaneously contribute to a unified experience? Um, and that, yeah, for 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 a fact, in in my opinion, uh, almost no theory of consciousness uh, can do, and doesn't even take seriously to begin with. Um, and fourth, uh, a theory of consciousness must be able to explain the causal role of consciousness, how it was recruited by natural selection, and why is it that we can talk about it. So all of these are kind of like really important constraints for a theory of consciousness. And yeah, I mean, in, in, in my opinion, you know, a lot of like the prevailing theories of consciousness, in a sense, really fail at kind of like really understanding that these are like hard, hard criteria you, you, you have to solve. Uh, a little bit of the case of, yeah, the theory dictating the fact more than the fact dictating the theory. Um, okay, so let's get on to probably like 
the most interesting and in 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 a sense useful uh, individual psychonaut. I mean, I don't believe he really had a think tank model. I mean, maybe a little bit. I think he was doing a cognitive science PhD when he was doing his explorations and talking to some of his friends, having experiences with some of his his friends in in a PhD capacity. Uh, I guess as an aside, I I would definitely say that. Uh, <laughs> he has a, a line in one of his books where he says, uh, drugs are, are, are wasted on the youth, you know, because if you have like 18 years old taking LSD and going to a rave, uh, that information is not going to aggregate very much. But if you have a 30-year-old uh, PhD in cognitive science having LSD trips with other PhDs in cognitive science, and they're talking about those experiences in light of the frameworks that they know, Ah, <laughs> there you actually have aggregation of information and actual kind of discussion of the properties of consciousness. And yeah, I mean, that's what really we should have more of is actually kind of, yeah, young, but not too young people uh, studying these, these things in kind of a, a think tank capacity. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the phenomenological observations that Stephen Lehar made about exotic states of consciousness. And I, I really want to emphasize how unbelievably neglected Stephen Lehar is in academia. I mean, not only were his papers rejected, I think, for very bad reasons, um, but actually, like, nobody's paying attention to his psychonautic work. But I think it's actually world-class. There's nothing better than this when it comes to developing facts that a theory of psychedelia has to explain. Okay, so I'll walk you through some of them. Um, as, a, as, a, as a background, he has uh, this uh, amazing comic strip called Cartoon Epistemology, uh, you can access online, where he discusses what is the actual structure uh, of an experience. Um, and in particular, this falls within the paradigm of indirect realism about perception. I mean, like one of the main issues that we find with kind of like phenomenology, I don't know, if you go to the Amazonian tribes and you try to gather, you know, ayahuasca phenomenology, it's not going to be very scientifically useful. Why? Because people are going to be interpreting those experiences in light of a direct realist uh, account of perception. You know, the naive and very common, you know, commonsensical idea that you have direct perception of the world around you. And um, yeah, if you have psychedelic trips with that belief, yeah, I mean, you will be talking about like, well, a spirit that visited me and then this happened. And in a sense, you will take very literally actually the content of your experience as some kind of manifestation from another dimension. Again, maybe falling on the paranormal cluster. But uh, Stephen Lehar is an, you know, a hardcore, you know, materialist, a hardcore indirect realist, he he always says, yeah, no, anything and everything you experience is part of your internal world simulation. And we have to make sense of the very bizarre things that happen on psychedelics in terms of, you know, alterations to the parameters of your world simulation. Yes. So anyway, full admiration. Um, hopefully more people will follow these. Uh, should be pretty obvious, at, at least people who are like highly educated. But I mean, in practice, this is a you know like a relatively rare framework, even among ac academia. It's it's my experience. 
Um, here's a little bit kind of like a further breakdown of an experience. Uh, uh, according to Stephen Lehar, he actually breaks it down into three layers. You have the, the modal layer, which is color um, and, and taste and touch. Essentially, all the kind of like very specific Quilia uh, varieties that kind of like paint the, the, the walls of your experience uh, in kind of like the, the paint of the theater of your experience. Then you have the, the middle circle, which is proprioception, is your feeling of where your body is located. Uh, and that's actually not a tactile feeling. And one of the crazy things is that on, on for example, DMT, you can experience tactile feelings way over here, but actually your body way over here. So there can be kind of a mismatch between proprioception and modal qualities, uh, except that like usually they, they are kind of like just a control system that prevents them from veering too far off of each other. <laughs> um, and then the, the last one is this um, motor planning space, uh, which Stephen Lehar argues is actually implemented with a force field. I mean, th this will probably take us very far afield, but uh, I, I really recommend reading uh, or seeing uh, cartoon epistemology to kind of like get a, get a sense of like what, what is it that Stephen is talking about here. Um, all right, so now let's walk you through some of the fascinating observations uh, that Stephen Lehar made. So, uh, and this is like, I, I, I would title this as kind of like against learned helplessness. Why? Because um, for the most part, I think people have learned helplessness about being incapable of describing what, you know, what happened on ketamine or what happened on, you know, LSD or, or DMT. It's just so far, quote unquote, beyond words. And you forget about it so quickly. You just say, you know, it was ineffable. It was um, mystical, transcendental. I, I, I can't put it into words. But hey, we have a president. Stephen Lehar can put it into words. So come on, <laughs> step up your game. <laughs> um, that, well, that's my that's what my my attitude in this case. So uh, another very common thing for people to say is like, yeah, you know, like psychedelics made me realize some things about myself. But then when I was asking about kind of like more like big questions and the nature of consciousness and so on, I realized that they didn't have answers. Well. Stephen Lehar has answers. He actually has answers, but he got the answers not because he was expecting them in a civil, silver platter. He was not expecting, you know, a machine elf actually handing him like the theory of consciousness. No, he got the answers because he was paying attention to the mathematical structure of the experience and really kind of like trying to put all of that in a framework. So yes, um, and... Uh, What's really fascinating is that in his very short book, I think it's like 120 pages or something like that, like look at all of the, you know, exotic states of consciousness that he talks about. Uh, and, and I would say for every single one of these exotic states of consciousness, he mentions novel, true, <laughs> and non-trivial things. Like things that like are obvious in retrospect, <laughs> if you just had one of these experiences but are like, yeah, novel, meaningful, and, and non-trivial. So huge kudos to, to Stephen Lehar. Um, first, okay, dissociatives. Um, ketamine's fragmented consciousness. So he, uh, in one of his, his uh, pages, he talks about, uh, well, a, a very important, I guess, like kudos as well to, to, to Stephen Lehar is that um, he, he actually independently, you know, convergently, uh, to QRI, like I didn't know about this uh, when we came up with uh, neural annealing, 
but he actually analyzes ketamine from the point of view of annealing. He actually talks about a fragmentation phase and then an annealing phase, um, which is fascinating that there's kind of this like convergent um, uh, identification of you know physical phenomena that are alike what is going on phenomenologically. Uh, and when it comes to the um, kind of like annealing phase um, uh, and fragmentation, uh, yeah, basically he talks about like these, uh, I mean, the quote is something like, um, some sketches, uh, A is of being embedded in a vast matrix of similar fragments of consciousness. So basically you kind of like fragment into many, 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 many components, or you're one of those components and there's like a vast matrix of other ones. Um, B is kind of like pushing against neighboring fragments causes C, a reflection back from that direction passing through. So you're one of these fragments as and as you're coming down and all of this is annealing and recongealing, there's this very fascinating phenomenon where if you apply force in one direction, you will notice that it would there's a kind of like Newtonian physics, but it's jelly-like. There's a jelly-like Newtonian physics and you can enter in resonance with the other fragments. And that's what actually allows you to reunify with them, uh, which, yeah, I mean, this is a huge hint about the role of resonance in local binding, in actually unifying features of your experience into complete holes. Um, and C, yeah, a reflection back from that direction passing through, and D, reflecting back from the other direction until E, a resonance is established with the whole matrix wobbling like a jelly. So if you recently had ketamine on kind of a sensory deprivation environment, uh, hopefully you, you 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 can see what I'm talking about here. This is a non-trivial observation, um, but and, and it's true. I mean, these are like wonky drawings, but this is a true thing. Uh, you take ketamine with an eye for this, and you will notice it. It's obvious after the fact. Uh, yeah, we have independently and conversionally figured figure this out at TRI. Here's another fascinating thing, which is how are scenes constructed on, on dissociatives? Um, so first of all, uh, there's kind of this like propositional quality to scene construction. So a mental image of a concept on uh, as a these on top of that. So uh, if you kind of like have the qualia of the proposition of on, you will experience, yes, some kind of like separation, usually in a harmonic structure in the sense of like dividing your experience into integers because that makes it very um, energetically efficient. And you will continue to have kind of these like nebulous uncertainty um, on top and below. Uh, but then there is a progressive evolution of mental imagery as a simple uh, yeah, sentence is parsed into mental image. So the box, you have the, the construction of the object is on, you have these kind of like propositional qualia developed, and then you have still uncertainty underneath the table, and then the table crystallizes, and then you have the box is on the table as the full construction of the scene. And uh, dissociatives can like slow down this process um, enough for you to actually pay very close attention. Of course, there's the whole philosophical question of like, what does it mean for experience? You know the process to be slowed down and if it's slowed down is it really the same process and you know that, that's a whole conversation but uh, i think like once you notice this uh as a fact of scene construction and sentence parsing within experience 
you will start noticing it all the time that as you construct imaginary scenes or hallucinatory scenes like on a DMT or, or ketamine, you will have kind of these like sentence parsing structure where yes, you come up with an object, proposition, puts it in a spatial relationship, it opens up an area of ambiguity or uncertainty, and then there is kind of reification, lower of uncertainty, and then the actual sentence and scene crystallizes. So um, all of these could definitely be studied uh, scientifically. I'm not convinced that really there's kind of like any theory that would be predicting this is the case <laughs> in particular. Uh, it's yeah, more, more kind of like a raw phenomenological observation that is important to take into account. Um, he also, okay, he has kind of these uh, sketches of the next day of the, dissoci yeah, the, 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 the dissociating progression of experiencing after consumption of PCP and, and marijuana. Uh, he talks of kind of like this feature fragmentation and how uh, if local binding starts out with um, uh, basically networks of resonance, which is uh, a very big component of the theory of Stephen Lehar, you have a breakdown of those networks of resonance where more and more components essentially become disentangled from each other until you have the features essentially hanging out on their own. Like you don't actually see a couch, you see maybe the fragment of a cushion and the fragment of uh, you know, the, the stove and the fragment of this and that, but they're not actually aggregating and putting themselves in resonance. Again, because you're all of these like fragmented you know, uh, components of experience, of course, as you re-anneal and you kind of like cool down uh, they can enter into resonance again, and then you will have the, the scene construction happen. Uh, well, here's like his uh, thoughts on, on salvia, you know, right? So he talks about impressions from a salvia trip as if consciousness is squeezed as in a vice. Uh, that's kind of like a one important phenomenology. I mean, like this is like widely reported. What I find really fascinating in, in, in this case from Stephen Lehar is, yeah, the fact that uh, he, he seems to be getting right every single one of these exotic states of consciousness, uh, like consistent with the drug literature, consistent with, yeah, trip reports and crazy images that, yeah, were drawn like a lot later after his book. Um, okay, so A, as if consciousness is being squeezed as in a vice, but not uniformly, feeling as if embedded in a surface, right? So people talk about kind of uh, becoming embedded in a flat sheet or something like that. Uh, a kind of like dimensionality collapse that happens on, on Salvia. And then uh, C and D, feeling as if embedded in a rolling cartwheel. Hmm. Uh, an E, very fleeting impression of consciousness folding up like an umbrella. So um, I don't know about you guys, but like this is not exactly something that would, you know, um, anticipate predictive coding to generate a full theory of, of course, feel free to prove me wrong. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I would, I would take this as like very raw phenomenological observations um, for, yeah, the construction of a, of, of, of a, of a post-Galilean theory of consciousness. Uh, okay, so here is perhaps some of the most relevant, fascinating observations. So, and this, this is something that happens uh, on dissociatives and psychedelics alike. Uh, the perceptual experience of the sweeping out of a surrounding room, uh, painting first the course outline. Um, so essentially, um, you get kind of this, yeah, hierarchical uh, construction of the scene as I was describing. Um, but <laughs> uh, 
if you construct something that is L-shaped, right? Um, here's the thing. In any of these kind of like constructions of scenes on psychedelics and dissociatives, if you pay attention to it, you will experience both the geometry of it and a vibratory signature that comes with that. Again, I mean, maybe I sound... I sound ridiculous saying that, right? Because no particular theory of consciousness is right now predicting that. And it, it pattern matches with who or the paranormal. But no, you guys, like the vibratory signature of phenomenal objects is a very evident, obvious thing once you actually learn to pay attention to it on, on exotic states of consciousness. And in particular, um, in the case of an L-shaped room, um, you will actually experience these very crazy bimodal sound. So like rather than being kind of like a harmonious consonant sound that would arise from a cube, uh, like or something like that, if you actually have like an L-shaped uh, asymmetrical configuration, the vibratory signature it will be something like uh, which, uh, yeah, I mean, from a kind of like more developed point of view that is very related to kind of like harmonic modes in a state of stress or they're essentially failing to fully couple together uh, or, or they are coupling together and then they have like very high beat patterns. Again, something that has to be explained somehow, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it for the time being as kind of a very important phenomenological observation. Um, oh, well, here's where it gets like even more trippy, but more profound. I think this is actually super important where basically, uh, yeah, Lehar started to essentially figure out this uh, thing he calls uh, phase conjugate mirror theory of perceptual computation. Personally, I think this is the most advanced theory of perception <laughs> out there. And I think it's probably true. Um, and uh, it essentially involves, uh, yeah, these crazy algorithms uh, like, um, yeah, basically shock propagation um, and kind of like aggregation of waves of energy colliding against each other to detect symmetry points. And uh, anyway, you should read the book. It's a, it's a subtle thing, but this is super profound and super important. And you're not going to understand consciousness <laughs> unless you pay attention to this, in my humble opinion. Um, okay, so to my knowledge, other than people at QRI, nobody understands the theories of Stephen Nehar and what he's talking about. But this is a gold mine of high quality phenomenological data, interpretation, and conceptual frameworks. I'm very confident, you know, eventually, hopefully not posthumously, but yeah, he's going to be recognized as like somebody who actually provided the data for a good high quality theory of consciousness based on these exotic states of consciousness. Um, but you know, there's more. Okay, like Stephen Lehar, I would say is probably the top. The best, the best, you know, rational psychonaut out there, uh, hands down, uh, when it comes to kind of like developing theories. Well, except I don't know, people at QRI. Then again, we're 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 building on 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 the on the shoulders of giants, uh, I would say. So, uh, not not full full credit here, but um, uh, no. But there's like other other people. I would strongly like if you are interested in studying consciousness and psychedelics and meditations. Um, rigorously in an academic setting, of course, you should absolutely read the latest predictive coding, you know, uh, paper. You really should. And you should really, you know, read whatever is going on in psychophysics and uh, what is whatever is going on in the free energy principle 
and so on. But also, you should actually be watching these videos. <laughs> so I think like my, my favorite uh, ones, which I describe as kind of like outstanding psychonaut phenomenologists who are on YouTube uh, would be Junk Bond Trader. Uh, it's kind of hilarious because he's uh, both a musician and a rational psychonaut. So you can see like his most watched videos are these like random music covers. And then also like DMT live trip number two, like a 20 minute video where he like does DMT live. <laughs> and then um, uh, really excellent content. Like if there's one video you should watch, it would be like this series, uh, which is my DMT year. Uh, he has like, it's a four part series. I think he starts out with a couple creepy trips. Like seriously guys, there's, there's no better content when it comes to like explaining what DMT is like, um, than this, this sort of video, or maybe even that video in particular <laughs> in the world. It's just, it's just world-class. It's outstanding. And he's just a random YouTuber. Like what is going on that like, we're actually having the best information about these exotic states of consciousness off of YouTube and not off of nature. <laughs> what is going on, you guys? <laughs> okay, so the other one to really look into is uh, Yosikins. Um, she uh, was involved in uh, Psychonaut Wiki and also this really amazing early stage, uh, uh, I believe like what became Psychonaut Wiki, which was Disregard Everything I Say, uh, which was yeah basically cataloging the effects of a whole bunch of different substances. Uh, but she recently started making videos and the videos that she's made so far are excellent. I mean, she's like putting essentially a lot of these kind of phenomenological observations into a super condensed fashion and animating them with visuals. So top-notch content. I mean, hopefully hopefully you'll recognize how world-class this is. Uh, then forerunners, you know, people who I think have really strong potential and they may become world-class in, 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 in the years to come. It's uh, You have a kaleidoscope eyes, like a, a girl who... Uh, I believe uh, she's a math major or studied math in, in, in university. And yeah, she, I mean, evidently she's reading QRI material, but also, yeah, she's kind of like com coming up with her own theories based on like the actual phenomenology of these experiences. Um, another one is uh, Sykes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I would say like the problem with that channel is like, um, it's not super philosophically cogent, uh, but the phenomenology is pretty good and, and you should check it out. Uh, and then like trip tips is <laughs> more about, it's more kind of like a how-to channel, but then like the phenomenology is still like super excellent. Um, and then there's like other ones uh, I, I would recommend you, you look at. I mean, you, you, you watch a bunch of these videos, go for a walk and just watch a, watch a bunch of these videos over a month and you will learn a lot uh, even if you've had experiences before, you will you will remember things. You, things will click into place as you listen to these videos. Um, Adeptus Psychonautica, uh, I believe he actually has interviewed me. Uh, recommend that video, but also his his other videos are really good. Uh, your mate Tom, um, especially when he describes the phenomenology of things such as yeah LSD visuals, um, Sleepy Eye. He has like good uh, phenomenological descriptions of DMT geometry. Uh, I mean, he watched the Harvard lecture on hyperbolic geometry of DMT experiences, and and then yeah, kind of trying to contribute. Uh, on top of that, uh, the Quentin experiment, uh, CG Kid, and Psyched Substance. Again, the previous ones are out outstanding. These ones are good. Um, Junkbot Trader is the one I would say 
ignore at your own peril. <laughs> like in 10 years, 20 years, there's going to be a lot of science <laughs> that like you will in a sense get a sneak peek by seeing these videos that like science really has not caught up to like actually what psychedelics are. Uh, I, I recommend watching, for example, yeah, Meeting God on DMT, like a, a live trip uh, or simulation theory. Like he suddenly becoming convinced that we we're in a simulation uh, in the video itself and then like coming out of that kind of delusion and explaining the, the phenomenology of that delusion. Fantastic content. I, I highly recommend all of that. <laughs> um, what else? I, I also recommend Hyperspace Lexicon. In particular, um, these are, I think, like true phenomenological observations. Now, uh, it is kind of like cast a little bit in the spiritual or mystical language, but uh, yeah, you know, you, you have to admit some of that uh, to get some of the, the juicy phenomenology. But uh, I, I would definitely endorse these um, concepts. The central light, uh, Kalon kinesioptic, kinesioptic, uh, luminorgasm, um, and magneto entanglement. And uh, trip reports that feature these these concepts. Um, yeah, this is useful. This is actually super useful. This is real things that happen on DMT. Personally, I think they're happening in your brain, <laughs> but but they're real. And I'm, I'm pretty sure current theories have yeah not much to say about these. Um, okay, so like things that I think uh, other phenomenological observations that merit more research according to QRI. Uh, this is just a list, um, a tracer tool, uh, some research that we've done on basically the phenomenal character of tracers. We have kind of like, like this Photoshop of tracers or Photoshop-like tool for, for tracer effects. Um, and there's like a lot of insights from that. Uh, field computing, like this is from uh, insights from Steven Lehar, uh, merging them with uh, Michael Johnson and definitely a lot of things that uh, I have written and, and figured out. Um, that, yeah, I mean, basically, don't think of the brain as a digital computer or it's not analogous to a Turing machine or a connection in system. Actually, the brain seems to be computing with fields. Again, this is not something that a theory right now is going to say, but I think it's true. <laughs> and if you actually embrace and explore this paradigm, you will be way ahead of science. <laughs> uh, okay, CDNS of the body, I think I'll explain that in a second. Um, An explicit binding via resonance in a hierarchy, hierarchy of coupled oscillators, which explains fractals and global coherence. Okay, so psychedelic tracers, um, uh, of course, we would be very happy to collaborate with, uh, uh, you know, if, if you want to do a study, if you're doing your PhD on psychedelics and you want to actually get a, you know, let's get some good facts uh, to, to, to furbish a future theory, uh, I think like uh, psychedelic tracer replication um, is really, really, really good. So essentially here are like some facts that we have found. Um, A, um, there's different frequencies for different drugs. So like all of these kind of like woo or hippie, like, oh, you know, like LSD has a certain frequency. It's true, you guys, it's true. <laughs> and uh, and roughly we have it where uh, 2CB, uh, I mean, this is very preliminary, but like 2CB might have like a, a frequency of tracers of around like 12 Hertz. LSD, maybe it's kind of like 15 and 20 Hertz. Psilocybin a little bit higher. And then you have like DMT, which is 30 Hertz and 5-MeO-DMT, which is about like 40 hertz. Um, how, why is this the case? We don't know, but let's first catalog this, these facts, right? Uh, before we, we kind of like decide on a theory. Uh, and also, um, very importantly, DMT flickers the afterimage between uh, blue and yellow. Uh, so basically between a color and its, um, and its uh, 
inverse after image. Um, whereas 5MU DMT generates monochrome after images. And we think this is actually super significant that actually the flickering between a color and its opposite, it's generating information. And it's information that the experience can build on top of. And in that way, yes, on DMT, that explains kind of the very chaotic information generation that, that, that emerges. Whereas on, DM, on 5MEO DMT, there's kind of this convergence to a more simplified and simplified experience. And yeah, I mean, if you think of it as like, okay, you overlay the same qualia on top of itself, on top of itself, you know, kind of everything unifies and everything becomes monochrome as opposed to DMT is like, yeah, you're flickering back and forth and back and forth and it builds on top of each other and complex structures and, and so on. So yeah, this is a uh, like very low level fact that may explain a lot of the emergent uh, phenomenology in higher doses. Uh, a very other important phenomenological observation, this is both true in physics and in consciousness, is that there is a duality between the vibration and the shape of uh, of, uh, uh, of your experience. So essentially, uh, in the Kladney plate, this is a mechanical uh, wave propagating in a, um, yeah, basically a, a metallic uh, sheet. Um, if you make it vibrate at a certain frequency, you will see that only the frequencies that are nearby to the one that you're vibrating that fit an integer number of times, basically what's called the resonant modes of the plate. Uh, are essentially viable attractors. Why? Because every other frequency cancels each other out if they don't fit an integer number of times. But the really crazy thing is that this entails that there is kind of this duality between um, shape and frequency on the one in the one side, the shape of the object and, and, and frequency, and the resonant shape that emerges. What are the nodal patterns? Um, and that seems to be true on consciousness as well. I mean, like the, the resonant modes that Stephen Lehar was uh, talking about Yes, when you construct a room on DMT or ketamine or LSD, uh, you can notice that its shape and its vibroacoustic properties are duals of each other. The vibe of a scene and its shape are duals of each other. This is why I think uh, in a lot of spiritual circles, for example, people say like, oh, don't pay attention to the DMT hallucinations. They're distractions. What really matters is the internal energy flow uh, your inner processing or something like that. Well, guess what? I, I think they're duels of each other. Like what is going on in the crazy patterns and tactile hallucinations is a reflection or is the other side of the coin of what is going on emotionally. And I mean, as a fact that we have picked up so far is that if you have very blissful, harmonious, pro-social states of consciousness, that comes together with harmonious and symmetrical and consonant shapes in the experience. Again, feel free to prove me wrong, <laughs> but I believe this is one of these facts that, yeah, I mean, we, we know far ahead of, yeah, basically the, the scientific literature, uh, partly because we pay attention to valence, we pay attention to actually what makes an experience feel good or bad and kind of like try to uh, identify correlations between that and, you know, the features of the experience. Uh, and yeah, this is kind of from a, a talk about quantifying bliss, uh, a paradigm of QRI that we are yeah, currently developing and testing with neuroimaging. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole field that we are starting, but essentially, yeah, we, we, we believe that um, the shapes that you experience in psychedelics will actually ultimately yeah, be super predictive to actually the mood that you're having. Um, and uh, this is just kind of like a, a placeholder slide, but like essentially 
you can apply this uh, what call, we call the CDNS decomposition consonants dissonance noise uh, signature of a of a uh, of your energy body, which is a phenomenological property of your experience. Uh, if you doubt, you know, the existence of the energy body, I would ask you to, you know, ask yourself if you believe that attention is real. I mean, attention is not an object, <laughs> but attention is clearly real when it comes to like the structure of your experience. And and I would say, yeah, the same with uh, the, the energy body is a feature, a phenomenal feature of your experience. And uh, the reason why something like ketamine can be so beneficial for treatment resistant depression it's not exactly because it's allowing you to process, you know, like prediction errors or something like that. It's much more because it's allowing you to disregard prediction errors such that you get in touch with these very beautiful harmonic resonant waves that goes across the entirety of your body. Okay, so that's what's happening at the phenomenological level. And that's very warm and high valence and, 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 and blissful and pleasant. And we suspect that actually that is the mechanism of action. Like if you actually got that from your ketamine trip, as you cool down, as you come down, you will real anneal, but with a kind of smooth energy body. And because of the duality between the regularity of the energy body and valence, um, essentially that will give you a much, much uh, better felt sense after the trip. Oh, this is of course fully testable, uh, and and we could like yeah talk about like questionnaires to test it, but uh, yeah this is very divorced from kind of current paradigms, isn't it? But it is like really taking seriously the phenomenology, and yeah I mean I think this is uh, probably the way to go. Um, here are just like some quotes from uh, "Seeing That Freeze" by uh, Robert Bea, uh, a really famous meditation teacher. His yeah his most famous book "Seeing That Freeze," uh, where he talks about the energy body. So. For example, he says, the harmonization and unification in well-being that is characteristic of samadhi, this very blissful, high equanimity, high concentration, tranquility state, can also be regarded as a harmonization, alignment, smoothing out, and opening of the flows of energies of the subtle body. So he is noticing this, this uh, dual correspondence. In a sense, we had noticed it already at QRI. And then reading the book is like, yes, okay, this guy gets it, except like he was understanding it only from the point of view of meditation, but it's the same thing. Uh, meditation as a energized state of consciousness resembles uh, a lot of, has a lot of psychedelic features. Um, and there's like a, a couple other quotes you, you can also uh, check out in the recording. Um, uh, finally, I think I'm getting towards the end of the presentation. Yeah, we have kind of this hypothesized duality between the phenomenal texture of the experience and not only the you know vibratory signature, but also the computational state. Like actually, what is it that you're processing? And and the claim actually uh, here is that um, um, resisting resisting vibrations in your energy body when you're on a psychedelic has a dual correspondence with resisting information, the spread of information. So when there's like a realization that is too painful, you don't want to accept it or, or embrace it that will manifest as you're resisting a vibration. Hmm? So that's that's something to think about. I think it's phenomenologically true. Um, and I think, you know, we, we have to figure figure out how to actually make it fit with uh, any kind of neuroscientific paradigm. We would definitely propose a kind of like marriage between rebus and neural annealing. Although, yeah, that's a much longer conversation and much more technical. Um, finally, yeah, I mean, this insight suggests achieving states where energy feels liberated um, where you don't have these blockages might be especially useful. 
for therapy. So like if we can increase the probability of that happening, uh, you will have probably much better therapeutic outcomes. Uh, second, we have like this issue that like, yeah, basically cross-modal coherence might have therapeutic value of its own. So like if you, if you don't ketamine, you experienced a coupling between your visual field and some beautiful resonant waves and your energy body and they were in sync. Yeah, that probably is beneficial uh, because it's essentially generating this coherence and this symmetry that will anneal a positive valence into your, your, your experience. And due to heavy and learning, you know, you're in a sense reconfiguring the connections of your brain. So this is not just epiphenomenal. It's not just during the trip. Uh, second, cross-scale coherence may also have therapeutic value. This has to do with the, the whole uh, set of fractals, families of fractals that you can experience on, on exotic states. Um, the feeling of being in a washing machine uh, can be reinterpreted through a lens of neural annealing on ketamine. And uh, yeah, fi finally, triangulating a good vibe might have counterintuitively good effects. So like, okay, like um, if you feel bad, can you identify like a region of your energy body that is discordant or a region of kind of the vibratory signature of the hallucinations that is discordant? Okay, maybe fix that. And if you fix that, your feeling will feel better and, and vice versa. So you can kind of like triangulate and improve the valence that way as a, as a form of like navigation for exotic states of consciousness. Um, I, this is just kind of like placeholder again, like alternative paradigms of computing. All of this actually suggests that, yeah, I mean, the brain uh, is much more than a computer <laughs> or classical computer. Uh, it also uses wave-like computation, also uses holistic field behavior and uses topological computing, which I don't have time to, to argue for, but I, I would assign a very high confidence that, yeah, I mean, the brain is actually also a topological computing engine, completely not covered by, by current paradigms as far as I know. Um, uh, just, just some examples to kind of like illustrate some of the, 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 the points I was making, which is like, yeah, on DMT, you, you experience this, yeah, profound kind of like patchwork of resonant modes. And when they're discordant with each other, they don't fit together very well. Yeah, that's an unpleasant experience. If we can lay them out in a way that they, their interactions are in phase, that will correspond to a very positive experience. 5-MeO DMT, um, on the other hand, tends to generate kind of like this feeling of pure space or pure consciousness, uh, a much deeper level of symmetry, um, which, yeah, basically gives, the, gives rise to both much more consonant and also much more dissonant experiences. So yeah, important to, uh, to consider. Uh, and I think this is one of the, the final slide, which is uh, uh, basically if you, if you lay out the state space of consciousness as this interplay between information content and energy levels, um, <clears throat> some of the facts that we have to integrate into science is that, yeah, I mean, essentially DMT pushes you towards kind of this middle level of complexity uh, but uh, energy across the board. So kind of like the DMT, machine elves, and plasma consciousness, and all, all of that crazy irreducible complexity would be kind of like way at the top in the middle. Whereas, yeah, 5-MeO DMT tends to concentrate to the left. It's kind of like only very clean, pure, or highly dissonant, <laughs> but low information, uh, highly symmetrical configurations of consciousness arise, which because of the dual correspondence, as I was explaining, um, yeah, uh, in a sense, like come with um, very, very high valence or very, very low valence. And uh, that's about it. So thank you, everybody. Um, very, very happy to open it up for discussion and answer questions. And uh, there you go. Thank you so much. Uh, I'll hang